You're listening to the Big Film Buffet Snack Edition. I am Alexi Toliopoulos and I am always joined by one of my dearest friends, Jen Fricker. Oh my goodness. It's so wonderful to gather with you, to be here in this moment, our powerful energies combining, Alexi. You know why? The power of three combines us. Yeah. Hoops to you. Tag yourself. I'm air. (laughs) (laughs) But we're not alone in our coven today. We are joined by one of my favorite people in the world to talk about all things witchiness in Fear Street. Because Fear Street is the trilogy that we're talking about at the moment on Netflix. And at the center of it all is Ms. Fear herself, the witchy, vengeful spirit that is behind all of the spooky and ookiness and perhaps even the dookiness of. Fear Street Trilogy. So we have called in our sage wisdom expert of all things witchy. They are a film critic, a film curator, and the author of the new book, The Rose Daughter, amongst also the Who's Afraid series. And the reason they're a witch expert, because they're an award-winning author of a witchy book themselves, The Witch Who Caught a Death, it is Maria Lewis. Yay! Welcome to the pod. Hail to the watchtowers of the north, guys. It's great to be here. Blessed be. Blessed be. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming and joining us. We have been in the middle of Fear Month on our podcast, and we wanted to get into the history of witches because they really seem like they're having a moment right now. And as we kind of go through this film trilogy that takes us through the 90s, through the 70s, through the 1660s, we kind of notice a pattern that that witches seem to represent certain things. And we thought, we have to talk to an expert. We have to. Maria Lewis, tell us about the first time you saw a witch on screen and what it kind of represented to you. First time I saw a witch on screen was in The Wizard of Oz, a movie that I hate. Um, but I <laughs> controversial <laughs> off the in bat, straight with a hot take. Don't yeah. like it. Wizard of Oz sucks. That's my take. But I really loved Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, mm. Loved her aesthetic. Loved a green gal. Loved their shoes. <laughs> just across the board, fun shoes for everyone involved. Glinda the Good Witch had dope heels as well. She had an amazing aesthetic. And I was like, who are these girls? I need to know more. But I'd always been obsessed with Supernatural broadly. And mm. growing up in the 90s, and I'm sure we'll touch on this in a minute, but the 90s was a real, like, boom moment for witches in pop culture. Obviously, you had the craft and you had things like Hocus Pocus, which was targeted really at my age group. And then I was a little bit older by the time the craft came out. And I was like, well, I guess it's time to start practicing Wicca. Let's go, baby. (laughs) Let's get some revenge. And then, um, you know, things like Charmed and, of course, Buffy, when Willow had her witchy arc from sort of season three onwards, Charmed and Buffy were sort of coming out concurrently. So it was just like a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. You got like Mm. multiple shows evolving witches each week. It was so good. And in the 90s as well, there were some amazing witchy texts, like the original run of Fear Street, but also Tea Witches, which was in a similar target market to Fear Street, tweens and teens. But Tea Witches had these two twin girls who were both witches, as you may tell from the title. They were tweens and teens, but also witches, henceforth Tea Witches. And then the Disney Channel did a Tea Witches original movie with Tia <gasps> and Tamara as the Tea Witches. Mm. The movie wasn't great and the airing wasn't great, but Tea Witches, the book series, was a movement and a moment. And Fear Street as well, like especially because in the 90s it was a lot of like empowering versions 
versions of witches and you had like vague mm. bits of villainy, obviously with Hocus Pocus and the way certain characters evolve in the craft. But Fear Street was leaning really hard into that. And that fun era of satanic panic. Like, wow, what a time. Practical magic was coming out of that as well. And I was really obsessed with that book, even though I was way too young for it. I was just like, oh, this is amazing. Like people read up. And then the film. And I was like, mm. well, Midnight Margarita time. Let's go. This is all I want. So when you talk about satanic panic, what does that mean? And why does it pop up when it does? It was this trend in America, like around the 80s, shall we say. It was like, oh, my God, rock and roll music is Satan. And like if you play, you know, the Beatles White Album backwards, it says, you know, all hail Beezlebub or whatever. Essentially, the West Memphis Three is the case that often people think about in terms of satanic panic. And it was just like there were these three kids that were horribly murdered. And the three also children who were sent to jail for their Mm. murder were these boys who were like dressed in black and wore leather and listened to heavy metal music. Music and like, you know, war chokers or whatever. It becomes this thing where it was like this systematic idea that there were cults out there hailing Satan mm. <laughs> left and right. Satan was getting hailed like nobody's business and that witches were an ever-present threat in America. And it's not really true. And that's where you get stuff like Charmed and stuff like The Craft and stuff like Fear Street. Shady sides like a, a fictional town, but the idea of satanic panic is sort of flirted with in the story in a way that I really enjoy. It was like exploiting and exploring something that had real world consequences and was talked about in the news all the time into a really fun and engaging and genuinely scary genre story. That was the thing I was always obsessed with about those books. The thing that I love so much about like horror films, Maria, is that whatever it is, whatever the demon or thing chasing after you is always so like laden in subtext of what the film actually is really about. With witches though, what do you think they actually represent when they're on screen or in text at all? Well, it depends on what the story is trying to do and also who is telling that story because the way that men represent witches is very different to the way that women represent witches in popular culture. And not to say negative or positive either way, but witches might often at times are represented as villainous originally. And then you have this split sort of happening around the 30s and 40s where you start to have more cartoon representations and newspaper serials are becoming popular, where you start to see variations on this idea of like green skin, warts, you know, the pointy hat, the broomstick, mm. the like witch on your cereal box, the of it all, etc. Like that's, I don't know what the proper, like, you know, academic term is for, (laughs) but like that covers it. Right. But Mm. you start to see the split when then you begin to have Sabrina, the teenage witch, right. Which was Mm a Archie comics character invented by Dan DiCarlo out of the sixties, along with Josie and the Pussycats around that same era. And that became a really popular animated series for Saturday morning cartoons in America. But it started to sort of explore this idea of not all witches had to be villains. Mm. and that there could be like fun and cuteness and quirkiness and kookiness involved in that, right? Witches can just be people with power and what they do with that power shifts depending on what you're trying to say with Mm. that character, right? And traditionally witches and the idea of witchcraft was used as like a handy Ikea guy to like get rid of a bunch of women. The witches was like, oh, let's get rid of these bitches. That like 
Hexen House and this whole idea of the Hammer of Witches, which was literally an instruction on like, hey, so you want to round up a bunch of like blousy broads and all these women be yap, yap, yapping with their property and their opinions. Here's how you can kill them. And like, I don't know if they have a birthmark, like string them up. If they like talk to other women, I don't know, put them at a stake. Like that was the idea. It was like extremely step A to B to C to D. Let's like fast forward 300 years into the future from um, from the 1660s, from those kind of original kind of witch trials and that kind of thing to, as you're saying, these 1960s depictions of witches. And when you were kind of talking about representations of femininity and that kind of thing written by men, one that really popped to my mind is Bewitch. It's such an archetypal version of a magical woman and that mm. kind of thing. Tied into you- like housewifery really as well. Yeah. Why, what do you think was bubbling around in the culture at that point that informed that? Well, I Dream of Jeannie comes out around that same era too and those shows very much in the same dialogue of you have a fantastical premise that is like your sort of elevator pitch of the show and then wacky hijinks happen in and around it. But it starts to get fun in the 70s, like when you get to Suspiria and stuff like that and you have this idea of covens and Mm. it's not just a witch it's like multiple witches that's when it starts to get really fun and then you get to the 80s and you have like witches of eastwick with Cher and stuff and you're like this is when it's starting to get good is it's not about one witch it's about multiple witches that's when it gets juicy it's interesting seeing how they evolve like over these different eras and how they tie into like i guess the idea of femininity or the idea of feminism of that time Yeah, because, you know, the 60s are often referenced as like a really big moment for feminism, but also the suffragette movement of, you know, the early like 1910s, 1920s. And it's not long after that that you start to see more witch representations in pop culture that are negative. You know, Mm. it's used as like versions of propaganda of like, look at all these suffragettes and they're compared and drawn like witches with the warts on the nose, the whole thing. To like drill down on the evolution between like the 1960s pop culture witch and the 80s, what do you think are the key differences between the witches of the 60s and the 80s? Cocaine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You you can even see it with the hair and just the vibe is looser and wilder. You know what I mean? Mm. Like even the progression, like Bewitched, Suspiria, Witches of Eastwick, you can see where it's moving and where it's going. And then by the time, like the late 80s, when you're really getting into the meat of the riot girl movement and that's like burgeoning into grunge and the mm. Lilith Fair of it all. And even the name Lilith Fair, like that relates directly back to Wicca and Wiccan practices, the music and the sound and the aesthetic and the unity of women and how that tied into pop culture. By the time that you do hit that pop culture apex of witches in the nineties, it's really logical. And I think very easy to see how that is transitioned. Do you think witches and their stories that, you know, that are kind of popping up across these different decades of pop culture, are they a reflection of what's going on or are they kind of hinting at more subversive stuff that's bubbling up to the top? Again, kind of depends on who's telling the story and what their intent is because I'm very interested in female witch stories and oftentimes the things that they represent and how they represent them are different from the ones that are male witch stories. You know what I mean? 
practical magic. Okay. Yes. Like very much a film like made with the male audience in mind for sure, but it's based on a book by a female novelist. The idea of like the female matriarchy is so prevalent in that story between the older witches and the younger witches. And of course the daughters by the end of the movie. And I think that's really interesting compared to something like, you know, witches of Eastwick, I guess is a good Mm. example Mm. of that where it's like there's three women and then there's Jack Nicholson, I guess. Um, Like, let's just throw him in there and hope for the best. But also the modern Suspiria, I think, Mm. was a very interesting examination of what was happening present day in the world at the time and this sort of re-examination of feminism and intergenerational feminism and your even your body as a weapon, like the way that women's bodies can be weaponized against them. It was really fascinating to me as opposed to witches sort of being uh, not a gimmick, but it, like it's a story device earlier on. You know what I mean? You can't say Wizard of Oz. It's like a real examination of femininity. Mm. I don't feel like we start getting really interesting contextual breakdowns that are still enjoyable from like a film book movie perspective, but also have something to say until the nineties really. Fear Street, they had really good deaths. You know, the deaths were kind of always like sort of off camera, off the page was like alluded Mm. to. And it's so hard to write a death scene. Like I have seven books and every single one I'm like, oh man, I got to write a death scene coming up. Here we go. Like how to make it scary and interesting. Hard. Do you have a favorite death from like Goosebumps or Fear Street? Because we talked to R.L. Stein last week on the podcast and he told us about his favorite. I love that. Yeah. Let me just refer to the. <laughs> oh my Lord. Let Maurice the record has held show. held up about 10 Goosebumps <laughs> books that she just had ready to go. I actually have more on my shelf, but I was like, don't weird them out. Just keep it to 10. <laughs> <laughs> Night in Werewolf Woods, which is not a Fear Street book. It's an OG Goosebumps book. And I have a big thing for werewolves. They're probably mm-hmm. my favorite monster. But there are a few really good, like getting absolutely shredded to pieces scenes in that, which I found so enjoyable at the time. But going back and reading them and I'm like, man, middle grade is like eight to 12. Really? That's kind of what the age group is. Trying to write a a really good death scene is hard for me as an adult. And most of my books are targeted at, you'd say, 18 to 80 year olds, right? How the heck? Like R.L. Stein is a maestro, baby. Like Stephen King who? What do you think witches will look like in the future? Black. I think we'll start to see more witches that are representative of the world as we know it. I mean, Rachel True, the actress who uh, plays also a character called Rachel in The Craft, Mm. she was truly a really unique pop culture entity because that character was written for her specifically and she is like a practicing witch but she was also for so long the only representation of black women as witches and involved in witchcraft in popular culture like that character is a real touchstone for many people growing up not just in the 90s but you know you go to a pop culture convention and there's always plenty of Rachels from Mm. the craft like floating around and her presence as part of that uh pop culture property has been really consistent throughout but you started to see it with Sabrina the chilling adventures of Sabrina the teenage witch right they were getting a lot more diversity in Mm. there the witches that were at the school and then the witches that were you know 
villains in various regards, but also the people that were at her high school. But you're starting to see it in the page as well. Like I always mm. feel like comic books and books in general and just literature always a few steps ahead of the curve. Leading the way, if you will. Right, exactly. Because there's this book um, called A Carter Witch from like 2011 by a really incredible African author that was... It, it like did fine, like it did well, it won a mm. bunch of awards, but it's really started to find its level kind of like in the past sort of decade. It's become much more discussed and popular, but also Spell on Wheels by Kate Leth and my book, The Witch Who Caught a Death, has an <laughs> Aboriginal witch as like one of the key characters in that story. And I think that's exciting when you're starting to see other people get included in the narrative rather mm. than excluded because that was, you know, not just for witches for most of pop culture, it was a, a version of like white, straight, Caucasian femininity to explore it. And now we're past that and we're starting to see a few shifts on what that could look like, which is really exciting to me because every culture has witches in one form or the other. So what does that look like outside of like a Caucasian lens, you know? Maria, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, hail to the Watchtowers in the North. Truly, so <laughs> great to be here. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. You know, the whole bit. <laughs> thanks, Maria. <laughs> <laughs> 